I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. In cancer, synthetic lethality refers to a state in which two genetic mutations that alone may allow a cancer cell to survive will kill it when they exist simultaneously. Cytere Therapeutics is seeking to exploit that strategy with what it calls next-generation synthetically lethal therapies to treat a wide range of cancers. We spoke to Marcus Rentschler, president and CEO of Cytere Therapeutics, about synthetic lethality, Cytere's pipeline, and life as a small public biotech in 2022. Marcus, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Danny, for having me on the Bio Report. It's really a great pleasure to be here today. We're going to talk about Cytere, synthetic lethality, and the company's efforts to develop targeted therapies to treat patients with cancer. Perhaps we can begin with the concept of synthetic lethality. What does that mean? Yeah, so a synthetic lethality represents really a clinically validated approach to drug development. It's uh, been described first in the early 20s by Calvin Bridges. And what he was doing is crossing fruit fruit fly with um, mutations. And he found that even though the parents each had different mutations that um, were uh, survivable, when he combined them, they became lethal together. So really, it arises when you have a mutation or deficiency in two conditions simultaneously that are lethal together, but they're tolerable alone. So as it relates then to cancer therapies, you can imagine that your cancer has a specific mutation or malfunction of a protein that normal cells don't have. And that by itself, the cancer of course is doing fine, it's growing. Um, But if you create then a second hit with your drug, you impair a second protein, for example, um, the cell does not survive. And since the only uh, cell in your body that has this other alteration, um, you can have then a cancer specific effect without having a lot of side effects. So this is now an approach that's been validated in the clinic with four drugs approved um, that are PARP inhibitors. And so the PARP inhibitor inhibits a pathway called basic decision repair. That's a single strand uh, repair pathway. When you inhibit that, the cell has to use double-stranded DNA repair. And it turns out patients that are mutant and with BRCA or other genes that impair this double-stranded DNA repair pathway, together they become synthetically lethal. So there are approvals in pancreatic cancer, ovarian cancer, breast cancer, and prostate cancer um, for four different drugs. Total sales last year were about uh, over $2 billion. So this is a um, highly um, successful approach. And while it was used at first described really with DNA repair as a clinical application, people have used this concept beyond DNA repair and are going um, outside of that where 
the cancer has one hit and you provide the second hit. Is this an approach that is amenable to certain types of cancers? Is it expected to work in, in virtually any cancer if you know the, the right combinations of proteins? Yeah, this could work both in solid tumors as well as uh, hematologic malignancies. For the example of uh, the PARP inhibitors, it's been uh, entirely in, in the solid tumor area because the hematologic malignancies don't come with that second hit. But this concept um, can be used in both heme malignancies and solid tumors. And, and I think we're an example of that uh, in our phase one clinical trial we have seen clinical activity in both hematologic malignancies as well as solid tumors. You have a drug discovery platform. Are there specific ways to match specific tumor types to specific genetic and chemical synthetic lethality markers? How do you determine the most appropriate targets for your therapeutic candidates? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, we use, uh, first of all, a, a deep understanding of the biology of the target, right? Um, and uh, then you can have two approaches. One is a phenotypic approach where you genetically manipulate cells to have the first hit, and then you screen uh, your chemical library of potential drug candidates and uh, look for a readout of killing only the cells with the genetic marker and not the normal cells. Now, the advantage of such an approach is that you know it works and it, you know it works in the right cell, but you really don't know where your drug acts, right? And so that is actually the example of what we did with um, our lead program, CYTO851. Um, and uh, we had a fast to clinic approach where we invented the molecule and within two years, we had it in the clinic um, in a clinical trial, and it took an additional two years to identify the actual target of that drug. Now, a second approach is that um, based on your deep understanding of the biology, uh, based on publicly available CRISPR screens and synthetic lethality screens, as well as our internal CRISPR screening, um, you then um, you know, make the protein, you have a assay that measures the function of that protein, and then you screen your small molecule library um, for those that uh, inhibit that particular protein. But then once you have the hits, you have to go and make sure that it actually gets into the cell and does the thing in the, in the cell lines. Um, and so that's um, the kind of approach we have taken for our uh, second and third targets. Uh, those are entirely in the um, DNA repair space. Let's talk about your, your lead program, CYT0851. What exactly is it and how does it work? Yeah, the, um, what we're doing with this drug is that we're exploiting the fact that cancer cells have reprogrammed their uh, metabolism to use a glycolytic metabolism. Let me step back a little bit and, and just talk about that. So um, we have uh, two kinds uh, of uh, metabolism to produce most of our ATP, ATP that's the, the currency of energy in the body. Um, the normal cells use predominantly oxidative phosphorylation, which requires glucose or sugar, um, requires oxygen, and then it breaks down the glucose to carbon dioxide and water. 
Now, as cells start to proliferate more rapidly, or in the case of muscle cells, you know, you run out of ATP within a couple seconds of highly strenuous activity, you turn on uh, glycolysis. Now, glycolysis doesn't require oxygen and it can produce additional ATP and it produces lactic acid. And with exercise, you know that because you feel the burn. The burn is the lactic acid produced by the glycolysis. So cancer cells have figured out that it allows them to be more aggressive, proliferate more rapidly and generate additional ATP. And um, they switched their, their metabolism to glycolysis. And we're exploiting the fact that that lactic acid has to get out of the cell. So we block the transport of lactic acid out of the tumor cell into the extracellular space through inhibition of transporters that transport the lactate. And those are called monocarboxylate transporters. It took me six months to learn how to say it. In short, MCTs. So we inhibit MCTs from exporting lactic acid out of the cancer cell, which then the cell has to deal with that lactic acid. So it can either die or it can stop making uh, lactic acid. And so the cells that are able to switch back to oxidative phosphorylation are probably fine, but the cancers that can, those are the ones um, that uh, we can impact. And so our biomarker work now is focusing on who are those patients. Um, the other thing it does is you can imagine that acid when it gets dumped out of the cancer cell uh, changes the environment uh, around the cancer cell. It, it, it uh, makes it unfriendly to your immune cells. And, and that's why a lot of um, cancers don't have an immune response. And it also uh, allows the cancer to be uh, more aggressive and invade into the, the tissue through producing that acid. Well, as you block MCTs, that acid doesn't get out anymore. And potentially then that could make it more favorable for the immune cells to come in and fight it. So that's something that we're exploring now to what degree that's important and that's ongoing research. And my understanding is there was a bit of a surprise on realizing what the mechanism of action was here because you had actually thought it was something different going into this. Yeah, that's uh, um, absolutely true. The um, phenotypic screen was targeting cells that had upregulation of DNA damaging enzymes with the thought that we inhibit DNA repair because we were very selectively killing off the cells that had high expression of these DNA damaging enzymes. Um, and uh, sure enough, we saw a reduction in RAD51, which is a critical protein in one of these uh, repair pathways to fix the DNA damage caused by the DNA damaging enzyme. Um, and then we did a very broad search for the target. Um, we used bioinformatic data. Um, we did CRISPR screening to find out what is synthetically lethal with uh, 851. Um, and we looked at gene expression and genetic backgrounds of cancer cell lines that were sensitive to 851 and compared that to cell lines that were not. And interestingly, all three approaches led to the monocarboxylate transporters as the target of 851. Now, 
how come then that uh, we saw the reduction in RAD51? And it's actually very well tied together because one of the consequences of the increase in lactic acid is that the cell shuts down production of RAD51 as well as some other proteins, but that's a, a secondary effect. It is not the primary effect of the, um, the drug. And is the expectation that you would use a, a biomarker to identify patients that would respond to this? I think that's um, certainly something we're looking into uh, to um, make sure that the patients are more likely to benefit from treatment. So in dose escalation, the first phase of human testing called phase one, uh, you're really getting the sickest of the sickest patients. Um, and that's very hard to get an estimate of the true activity of the drug. Nevertheless, we did see uh, true responses um, and we have uh, some patients uh, on treatment almost for two years uh, now. And so there, there's um, quite a bit of activity and the question is, is it good enough uh, as a monotherapy without a selection factor or are we better off selecting patients? So there is a lot of work ongoing right now to identify that biomarker the lower hanging fruit are looking at expression of the MCT forms. There are four different forms. Um, and um, it turns out the cancers that we're studying in the clinical trial are high in MCT1 expression. So that's a good starting point, but that uh, may be a way to select. Them. The other is to look at other genetic factors that we have found to be synthetically lethal in the CRISPR screen. So there are metabolic genes, there are um, mitochondrial genes. Those are genes that are probably forcing the cell to use glycolysis and not allowing it to switch back to oxidative phosphorylation. So that work is ongoing and um, that may end up giving us a, a, a population of patients that are more uh, dependent on glycolysis and therefore more likely to respond to 851. Now, we are potentially the first in class MCT inhibitor. Um, there are no other MCT inhibitors in clinical trials to date, and they're non-approved. And what indications are you looking at for 851? We have a very broad phase two program looking at six different cancer types, um, three of them hematologic, follicular lymphoma, that's a non-Hodgkin lymphoma, as well as diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. Uh, multiple, and multiple myeloma, so three on the hematologic side. And then on the solid tumor uh, side, ovarian cancer, um, pancreatic cancer, and soft tissue sarcoma, those are cancers of the, of the flesh, the muscles, or the soft tissue of your body. There are, now that we understand the mechanism, additional tumor types that we may uh, test as well. So those six right now are in expansion cohorts, uh, a phase two study uh, where you get a first hint of the activity. And if the activity is sufficient, then you would go on uh, with additional testing. Now, we don't have the resource to do all six, um, but there are six shots on goal. In addition, we're combining it already based on the safety profile where basically we saw a generally well-tolerated side effect uh, profile, 
as well as um, no suppression of blood counts, which, uh, as you may know, is sort of the, the, the critical toxicity that, that uh, limits the use of chemotherapy, uh, which makes us believe that we can combine 851 with chemotherapy. And um, so we did a, a broad screen of drugs that in the laboratory would be additive or synergistic with 851. And we've begun phase one dose escalation in combination with gemcitabine, uh, capecitabine, which is an oral precursor of 5-fluorouracil, a commonly used chemotherapy drug, uh, as well as bendamustine rituximab, which then could open up potential indications in pancreatic cancer, breast cancer, GI malignancies like colorectal cancer, ovarian cancer, soft tissue sarcoma, and uh, non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So it's at this point, it's rather broad. Of course, as a small company, we will have to focus. So we will take the most uh, exciting uh, path forward that allows us a, a fast-to-market strategy. Um, and we can expect da data in the second half of this year um, that may potentially allow us to, to uh, know which of these we could move forward. What's known about the safety and efficacy of 0851 from the studies that have been done? Yeah, we recently, uh, just at the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO annual meeting, presented uh, the uh, phase one dose escalation data. Uh, this was the report of the safety and, and pharmacology and preclinical uh, efficacy on patients uh, treated in 12 different doses of 851. Uh, you escalate the dose until you reach the maximum tolerated dose. And we um, treated a total of 80 patients. Uh, the maximum tolerated dose is 600 milligrams. The drug is taken once a day. Um, and uh, we are moving forward in the phase two with a dose of 400 milligrams. Um, it, it appeared to be a bit more tolerated. The most common side effects are fatigue, um, seen in about 18% of patients, and then uh, really uh, very mild uh, GI upset uh, with some nausea. Uh, patient at high doses had um, hair loss and um, at uh, the highest doses had as a dose-limiting toxicity metabolic acidosis, which now that we understand the mechanism makes perfect sense. Now, with respect to activity, we've seen broad activity um, across both solid tumors and hematologic uh, malignancies with a 44% disease control rate. So you have to realize all of these patients are very uh, advanced and refractory. They have ex you know, uh, ex had all of these standard therapies and exhausted them and had really no treatment options. And they were all progressing to get on the trial. So 44% had disease control. In solid tumors, there were 45 patients um, that were response evaluable. Uh, we did have an unconfirmed partial response um, that um, uh, lasted for 11 months. 42% or 19 patients had stable disease, disease and a, a quarter of patients or 27% had a decrease in the target lesion size. So the tumors that are being measured and being followed um, uh, over time with a total disease control rate of 44%. Now, on the hematologic side, 
we treated 18 patients with non-Hodgkin lymphoma that were responsive valuable. We saw three out of those 18 with a response. Uh, one follicular lymphoma patient had a complete response. So uh, his more than 10 centimeter sized grapefruit sized mass in his neck um, uh, went down to normal and is no longer metabolically active. That patient uh, at the time of the data cutoff was on treatment for 20 cycles and is still on treatment doing well. Uh, we had uh, two PRs uh, or partial responses, one in diffuse large B cell lymphoma and one in a follicular lymphoma that is uh, going on now for 11 months. Uh, we also had three patients uh, with stable disease uh, and, uh, with uh, different types of non-Hodgkin lymphoma and hairy cell leukemia. So, um, Overall, um, this is quite promising and led us to initiate the phase two expansion cohorts as a monotherapy at the beginning of the year. And then also the phase one combination regimens with the three different regimens that I mentioned. And what's the clinical development path forward? The path is now dependent on the outcome of those six expansion cohorts as a monotherapy and the combination uh, cohorts with the three different regimens. Once we have that data, we'll make a decision then um, which of these nine cohorts have the greatest chance of success based on an overall benefit risk analysis uh, to move then into potentially registrational phase two trial that could commence next year. You mentioned you're testing this with another agent. Is, is it expected to be used in combination therapies or are you looking at it at all as a monotherapy? I think we're, we're looking at both. Uh, the um, monotherapy has the advantage that it's unequivocal that your drug is causing the benefit. And so the regulatory path is more straightforward. In a refractory setting, you can get uh, what's uh, called accelerated approval based on uncontrolled trials with a surrogate endpoint such as tumor response rate. Um, and then you have the obligation to confirm the, the true clinical benefit in a randomized trial post-approval. Um, when you are in combination, you have to establish the components, uh, the, the contribution of each con component, and it would require a randomized trial even for accelerated approval. Um, but commercially, uh, of course, especially with gemcitabine or 5-FU, um, those are very large opportunities. Um, so we will pursue them if promising, and we will also pursue monotherapy if the uh, expansion cohorts are promising enough. Citeer completed an IPO in June 2001 at $18 a share. Like many biotechs, if you've seen your share price fall dramatically after reaching a high of 23, the stock is trading around $2. How do you account for the drop in price, and, and what's the discussion been like with shareholders? Yeah, the... Uh, stock price of the class of 21 IPOs uh, is uh, down uh, in all but three of the um, more than 100 IPOs. Um, I think the um, our stock is tightly held. Uh, the, the overall decline in the biotech market, of course, is a function of a number of factors. The generalists have uh, exited biotech stocks. Biotech investors are down in their funds. They're not reinvesting. Uh, the regulatory environment has become more stringent. Uh, we've seen a lot of uh, complete response letters, meaning the FDA did not approve drugs. We see more 
clinical holds of uh, experimental drugs that are being tested. Um, big Pharma has become even more conservative. We saw lower M&A activity last year. Um, it's starting to pick up. Uh, maybe um, that we're seeing some improvement. Um, and so all of those factors really um, have contributed to um, uh, a lower share price. Now, we are on track to meeting the readouts of the phase two expansion cohorts, as well as the chemotherapy um, phase one cohorts. Uh, and we're bullish that one of those nine cohorts will lead towards a registration strategy for 851 based on the safety and the preliminary efficacy that we've seen to date. Um, so I think with that data in hand, um, our investors um, uh, will be <laughs> hopefully looking at a, a, a better stock price. And that, of course, um, opens up additional options as well. Does being a public company make your job harder today? Being a public company has, has advantages and disadvantages. My job is a bit harder. Uh, there's more scrutiny on the progress, more scrutiny on the processes, uh, more scrutiny on what you say publicly. Uh, and there are expenses that you incur as a public company, DNO insurance, uh, auditors, legal expenses. Uh, so it makes it more expensive and onerous to run a public company. But the uh, being public is a huge advantage when it comes to raising money. Uh, the IPO loan allowed us to raise an additional 150 million in, in gross proceeds last year. Uh, we would not have been able to raise that for private investors. And now, even in this market, um, I think we are seeing examples where, with good clinical data, companies are uh, able to raise money in the public markets with following offerings. So the public markets are still, I think, more desirable to investors as it is liquid and, and um, that uh, we are a public company than uh, the private markets right now. How far will existing cash take you and how much runway do you have before you need to raise additional capital? We have publicly announced 2024 um, that our cash will go into 24, but Obviously, given the current market, um, we're working on prioritizing hiring, prioritizing the research um, to see um, how far beyond that uh, those things will get us. That, of course, is forward looking and uh, actual results could be uh, different uh, materially from, from our forecast. But we will update that in the next uh, quarter or so um, to give uh, investors more granularity on uh, how far into 24 that could go. Marcus Rentschler, President and CEO of Cytere Therapeutics. Marcus, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, thank you, Danny, for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send an email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.